Fintech is developing at a very rapid pace in Asia. For example, China is moving much quicker towards a cashless society compared to many developed countries in the West. We often hear stories of paying for street food in Beijing with WeChat Pay or Alipay. Both payment giants are tightly integrated with local merchants and are the dominant players in the country. Outside of China, such as in Indonesia, the story is not of dominance, but rather of fragmentation. There are many payment companies vying for users in the region, and as a result of such competition, these companies are providing financial inclusion for the unbanked and the underserved segments of the society. In today's episode, we talk to Victor Lang about the overall landscape of fintech in Asia. Victor is the COO and co-founder of Genie, the first global smart money tracking app based in Hong Kong. Victor, welcome to the FinTech Daily Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved with a fintech startup in Asia? Certainly, certainly. Yeah. Well, I have kind of a varied background. I'm、um, born and raised in Hong Kong. I'm a Hong Kong boy, and I went to university in the U.S. when I was 18, and I went to Chicago. I really, I really loved it there, and I ended up staying for about 15 years. And when I was in Chicago after I graduated, it was financial crisis, and there was a lot of distressed properties around. And I actually started a business, renovating and renting out basically all these vacant properties that were appearing all over the place. You know, back then it was very hands-on. There are no rules. We were getting lists of properties from banks, and we're going in and kind of trying our best to scope out the property. Eventually, you know, there's a lot of cleanup. We had to clean up these. Properties. Sometimes there are squatters living there. Sometimes there were gangsters. Sometimes they were just really old and, and dirty. And so I built a business doing that. And I still have some staff in Chicago running my portfolio. But after that, I actually started a biotech company, is a vascular tissue bank in Chicago, and that was a very interesting business. We would take veins from cadavers, clean them, process them, and sell them to doctors for bypass surgeries. And that was quite an interesting business, but we ended up selling that in 2016 to a publicly listed company on the Nasdaq, and so I was able to get an exit. And around this time, I started to relax a little bit. I took a holiday, and my cousin in Hong Kong, who was a banker, he was trying to get out of his line of work. And I was talking to him one day, and I asked him, you know, why do you want to? You know, leave banking. It's such a lucrative business, and he said that he was having really working so much, and he was spending all his money and had no idea where his money was going. And so, I asked him, "Do you use Mint.com or、uh, any one of these other personal finance apps?" And he says, "We got nothing like this out here in Hong Kong." And so, him and I, over the course of a few months, developed an idea to try and bring the PFM concept out to Asia. And as our app has progressed further, it's become more. We do a lot of data cleaning for a lot of raw transaction data, and we can talk a little bit more about that. But one thing for me that I've noticed about my own career, it's gone from, you know, cleaning up distressed properties to taking vascular tissue that someone might not need anymore and repurposing it, and now 
coming back to Hong Kong with this fintech company, taking raw transaction data and cleaning it and making it useful. You know, everything I've done has been taking things that someone didn't need or want anymore and trying to repurpose it for something new and, and, and good. And so I came back to Hong Kong about three years ago to work on this project. And I thought I was only coming back for a month. But, you know, after a month, he said, you can't leave. You have to stay and do this with me. And now it's been three years. So, yeah, you, you're pretty much a, a serial entrepreneur, has a very a diverse background and an interesting career. As far as fintech in Asia, like we've heard quite a bit in from the U.S. Like, you know, we've heard, all heard stories about how you can pay for street food in Beijing, for example, with WeChat Pay or Alipay and how it's better to kind of lose your wallet than a smartphone in China. Can you give us like an overview of the digital payment space in Asia currently and, you know, how the digital payments are different between, let's say, you know, mainland China and Hong Kong and how have they evolved over the past few years? Certainly. Yeah, I think, you know, the payment space in China in particular is incredible. It's a miracle story. I think the way that I would define fintech in Asia is in two ways. The first is in great advancement. There's been a number of fantastic advancements that have influenced entire societies. And you mentioned China as an example. In China, normal people never really had access to banking services. Most people didn't trust banks. Most people didn't make enough money to open bank accounts. It's a very poor society up until maybe 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And there's been a number of apps that have come out that initially start out as like chat apps. One of them is called WeChat. They also have another app called QQ, and it's made by a company called Tencent that makes a lot of video games, like mobile app, mobile games now. The WeChat app was used by everyone. It's almost like people don't use SMS in China. In Hong Kong, they don't use SMS. We use WhatsApp, like a lot Mm -hmm. of the Western world. But in China, WeChat is completely dominant. And around five or six years ago, Alibaba and WeChat both started to introduce payment methods using their respective apps. And for the first time in history, Chinese people were able to kind of not deal in only cash to the point now that in China, if you have cash, it's not even as useful as if you have WeChat or Alipay. And it's incredible. I was in China a few weeks ago, and I went to a restaurant to order something. And the WeChat app is now like the super app where you can do payments, you can get loans, you can have restaurant reviews, you can chat with people, there's video, there's all kinds of stuff. It's like a super app. And when I was ordering food, I just went to the restaurant and you know, there's a QR code on the front door. I scan the QR code and it says, oh, you're fifth in line. When I'm ready to eat, it says, go to table four. And I go over to the table four and the menu is, is a mini app in, the we, in WeChat. So I took another QR code on the table, selected what I wanted. And mm-hmm. five minutes later, someone brought it out on the table. And then after I just paid using the app on the spot, and I just walked out. And that was the entire transaction. I only interacted with a waiter when they were bringing me the food and when I asked for like a glass of water or something like that. And I think the way that you see WeChat changing people's lives in not just restaurant space, but in in payments is very significant to the point where I think 
probably 90 or 85% of all transactions are done using WeChat now or Alipay. Even the beggars on the street, they don't want cash anymore. They have their own WeChat <laughs> and you just send them money on WeChat. I think they prefer that too. That's super interesting. But so what do you think are the underlying factors? I mean, they can be like cultural, like technological that make the digital wallet like WePay or Alipay such a popular phenomenon in China. I think for me, what I think is the reason why it became so popular is really because people never really had access to banking services before that. So one of the, the things that I've noticed a lot is that the banks in China are becoming, you know, they've maintained their status as like a traditional lender for people with collateral. So for example, mm -hmm. people who are building property or people who were in established businesses, they had access to banking services. Once WeChat Pay and Alipay came out, it became the first time that many people had used, you know, what we know of as a bank, you know, be, being right. able to put money someplace and then use it in digital ways or using credit. I really think that what has been the big difference is that WeChat Pay and Alipay have become the first bank that most people in China have ever used. And it's actually skipped the, we're seeing a lot in China and in other places too, where there's a lot of what we call the unbanked population is that right, the mobile right. wallets are actually helping people skip the bank. So, you know, there's a lot of, we talk about Indonesia, for example, Indonesia has much more people percentage wise who are using traditional banks than unbanked, but they still have like 50, 60% of the people who are unbanked. And a lot of like the fintech technology that we're seeing coming out in these places are how do we bring the unbanked into a banked population or to, to provide them financial services without them going through the rigors of opening a bank account. And I really think that has been the defining factor that has made it successful. Okay, that's very interesting. So, yeah, I mean, seems like financial inclusion is, is definitely one of the, the factors like how the digital payments become so popular in, 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 in Asia. I'm just curious, like, are there like fundamentally different ways that the Chinese view digital payments compared to the U.S.? Are there like differences? Do you think those differences are likely to persist? Uh, would there mean like there will be a divergent path to be successful for payment companies in Asia versus here in the U.S.? Hmm. Yeah, I think the biggest difference between payments in China and in the U.S. is that the payments are very readily accepted at merchants. One thing that I noticed when I was in the U.S., even recently, is that most merchants only will take MasterCard or Visa or, or credit cards in general, right? And they take cash. But if you go to them and say, I want to pay with my Venmo, I know Venmo now has introduced some payments at merchants, but it's not very popular. Right. And so I think that is the biggest difference is that in China, the payments to merchants are completely dominated by WeChat and Alipay. And even if you want to use a credit card, you probably won't be able to do it. An interesting thing is that in China, MasterCard and Visa have basically been 
they haven't really operated in China for five or, or more years because the government has actually shut down their, their license. So there's been no issuances of Visa or MasterCard in China for over five years, as far as I know. And there are some new facilities the Chinese government is creating to allow Visa and MasterCard to operate again. But in the time of it, there has been this lapse. You know, the merchants themselves, they take Alipay and WeChat and the maybe the high-end merchants, the really high-end ones, maybe they'll take MasterCard and Visa. But I, I, I think that that's the biggest you know, difference between China and U.S. in terms of mobile payments. So I imagine that like WeChat Pay and Alipay would also charge a fee from the merchants, just like MasterCard or Visa. Is there a big difference between like the fees that, they, that WeChat Pay or Alipay charge for the merchants? Or I don't know exactly how it works in China, but in Hong mm -hmm. Kong, we have Alipay here and the merchants mm -hmm. are also charged like 2 or 3%, the same as Visa or MasterCard. Okay. Okay. Yeah. In China, it's very interesting because the payment space is so dominated by WeChat and Alipay. And so the, yeah. the, the amounts of money are, are so big in those wallets. In mm -hmm. Hong Kong, we have Alipay, but it's actually mm -hmm. a different Alipay. So we're not allowed to go to China to use our Alipay to buy stuff. We have to have a, oh. a separate Alipay that you oh, can only open with a Chinese bank account. Yeah, and so in in Hong Kong, it's really the penetration has been quite big. I read recently that over fifty percent of the population here has Alipay, but you can't really use it at specific places. In Hong Kong, one of the big conglomerates, the big business conglomerates, has partnered with Alipay. So if I use Alipay at certain supermarkets or certain stores, I get a special incentive, like a reward or or whatever. And I think most people are using, in places like Hong Kong, most people are using Alipay to receive those rewards, right? But yeah. in terms of day-to-day -day use, it's not as popular. If like the, the payment market there is mostly controlled by Alipay and WePay, what does that mean for like a payment startup in China or in Hong Kong in general, right? I think in China, it would be extremely difficult. I mean, WeChat Pay and Alipay are so big already. They're so powerful. And I don't know what are the potentials, the possibilities of, of doing it successfully. Now, uh, I'm not saying that you can't do it, but it just seems like, you know, it's like unless you have a huge amount of money and a huge amount of backing, it sounds like it, it would be a really difficult yeah. task. David right. versus Goliath. <laughs> yes, it's really like David versus Goliath, except that in, in China, like the big businesses are just so wealthy compared to there's so much mm -hmm. cash compared to, you know, the normal person in in the U.S. starting a startup, right? Like just the cost of living and and everything is so different. I think that one thing that we we do that is very clear about the big Chinese conglomerates is just the sheer amount of cash that they themselves invest into startups. So Tencent and Alibaba, for example, they often invest tens or hundreds of millions of dollars into startups that some that I've never heard of. Mm -hmm. Right. And I don't know if these startups are established. You know, some of them are like one, two years old, or maybe they have fantastic technology. And 
I think that there, if you create something really unique and really special, there is an opportunity to work with these big companies and even be acquired or even have them take a stake or invest in your company. But if you're talking about going against them, I think that's a little bit of a different story. Right, right. Let's zoom out here a little bit because we spend a lot of time talking about digital payment in China already. I just want to get a, your take on like the overall Asian um, digital payment space. Like, what do you see the differences between, like, say, the Chinese market, the Hong Kong market, the Southeast Asian market, the Korea, Japan? Sure, sure. I'm not 100% familiar with all those different markets, but I can kind of give you a brief rundown. I mentioned earlier that the Asian space is dominated by like two themes. One of them is great advancement, but the other theme is fragmentation. And what I mean by fragmentation is that all the different countries in Asia are incredibly different. They have different needs. The customers have different needs. They have different governments. They have different regulatory environments, different currencies. So what we found is that there, once you leave China, all these different markets have different rules, which makes it very hard for there to be a single dominant player. An example of this is in Indonesia. In Indonesia, there's a lot of unbanked as well. And they're being targeted with a lot of these different mobile wallet products. The thing is that in Indonesia, there's something like 10 mobile wallets that have a large percentage of the of the market. And the mm-hmm. people in Indonesia have no loyalty to one or the other. You know, there's a lot of rewards and discounts and user acquisition strategies to try and get people to use these different products. Mm-hmm. And as such, people have no loyalty, right? So it's like a massive battleground right now for user acquisition in terms of these mobile apps. The biggest one is a wallet made by a company called Gojek. I'm not sure you guys are familiar with Gojek, but Gojek is is a fantastic interesting company. And they started out kind of being an Uber, kind of instead of having someone come pick you up in a car in Jakarta, the traffic is really bad. So you come pick you up, they come pick you up in a motorcycle and you kind of ride in the back of the guy's motorcycle and you drive around. Mm -hmm. And it became after that, they started to expand their services to not just provide, you know, like door to door, you know, driving service, but now they have People, they come and do deliveries. You can order food on the Gojek app. You can have doctors come to your house, all kinds of services. And it's sort of become like WeChat mm-hmm. in terms that it's like a single super app that can kind of do everything that you need. And Gojek was the first to kind of integrate a mobile wallet. And in terms of a user acquisition strategy, it's very good because they already had so many people using the platform to you know get rides to buy stuff so they integrated the mobile wallet and people are now using that wallet to pay for their gojek services but also start paying each other and paying merchants so they have had a big head start but there's you know several other like nine or eight other mobile wallets that are each gaining traction and i think the idea is that there's just a huge market for people to acquire. So even if someone doesn't have the lead now, you know, there's still opportunity. I read an interesting statistic somewhere that in Asia, in the next five years, something like more than 500 million people, or maybe was it a billion people, will you have use digital banking for the first time. And I think when they're talking about that stat, they're not really talking about 
traditional banking as we know it. I think it's a lot of it is talking about how do we integrate the unbanked using mobile wallets and offering other financial services as well. So another place that we're seeing massive change in Indonesia is in the loans market. So people are basically using loans or lo- using these mobile apps like the Gojek app and others in order to get small personal loans. And these are, you know, maybe a hundred US dollars to, you know, a thousand US dollars to us is not a lot, but I think for a lot of people, it's like compared to their normal income, it's quite a big amount, but also these are short term loans. So the interest rates are very high. You know, you're talking, Mm -hmm. you know, they'd be illegal in America, you know, 20 to 50% Mm -hmm. on an annualized rate, but you're only borrowing for maybe two, three months. So this is the kind of stuff that we're seeing flood the Indonesian market right now and, and across China and across Asia as well. The, the small loans are very, very popular. And what is interesting to me about this loan market in both China and Indonesia and other places is that they don't have a traditional credit scoring agency like we have in, in the U.S., like TransUnion or Experian or, or whatever. TransUnion has been making inroads in some countries in Asia. But by and large, a lot of the ways that a lot of these fintech companies do underwriting is in using alternative data. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about people trying to deposit their money into like their paycheck into mobile wallets to as collateral. Or even, you know, I've heard of certain companies in different places like in India and China, what they do is they scrape your SMSs. And they kind of generate underwriting models based on your your trend conversations that you have with people. <laughs> and it can be things like, you know, they have GPS data, right? Because most of these countries are using Android. So it's very flexible in terms of what kind of data apps can collect. You know, the SMS can, can say like, oh, if can, you can kind of figure out if you're cheating on your wife, right? If someone's cheating on their, their spouse, you know, by the conversation they have and and that would reflect badly on their credit. Or <laughs> if you're talking about business or if you have a lot of like friends on, on WeChat that have like a higher certain scores in, in certain areas, that would reflect well on your credit. And not to mention in China, they have a new social credit system, which is just starting to come out. You know, the I think the big thing that we're seeing in Asia is how do we use non-traditional data to do credit underwriting. And I think that's kind of a, another big advancement that we've been seeing out here. Oh, that's, a, that's very interesting. So you've mentioned, so we spent some time on digital payments and the small loans. What are some other major sectors of growth for fintech in Asia that, that do you see in addition to digital payments and, and loans? Well, we've been seeing a lot of in terms of on the B2B side, mm-hmm. we've been seeing a lot of technology that improves basic processes of banks, right? I think that when we look at fintech in Asia, there's like a lot of big companies doing B2C. Mm-hmm. But in terms of B2B, you're seeing a lot of advancement in terms of how do we work with banks and how do we improve the processes that banks have. Mm-hmm. An example of this would be in the blockchain space. Mm -hmm. So in in Hong Kong, there was a lot of crypto, I'm sure, and in the US also, there's a huge crypto hype last year. 
yep. right? And people were making a lot of money on the crypto. And now that it's kind of the bubble has popped, people are questioning crypto. But there's been a lot of talk about how do we use the blockchain for existing processes, right? And mm -hmm. to maximize efficiency for banks. And one of the big ways that they found is in using the blockchain to authenticate documentation. So things like smart contracts is one of the big trends that people are following. So being able to like put a contract on a blockchain so that there's more transparency is something people are working on right now. There's also, you know, a lot of banks, they do trade financing and that's like lending money to people based on their, you know, the, the receivables that they have, certain assets and revenue that they, they're generating. And this business has been largely over the last, you know, in history has been very subject to fraud. You know, for example, in sometimes you want to lend some money to like someone who has a lot of boats, right? They, they are a shipping company. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can't tell whether the boats are real or whether they're they were purchased legally or, or what the real core sources of revenue a business is. And so what we're seeing a lot of is companies using the blockchain to try and put a lot of the materials related to underwriting for loans and putting them in the blockchain. And once they're there, it's, it's like kind of they're all set, right? So the banks, they can feel a lot more certainty in terms of following a chain of revenue to perform their credit underwriting. So we're seeing a lot of processes related to improving banking services. And the problem that we're that of the banks is that they're all really slow and they make some of them make so much money that they don't really have a need to improve. So a lot of the improvements using the new fintech technologies are really incremental. Okay, gotcha. So when I read Genie's website, I, I noticed that you guys are working with banks a lot. Can you just give us like like overview, like how do you think Genie fit into the ecosystem of fintech in China and in Hong Kong? And like, you know, what is smart money tracking and what other customers that are using this technology right now? Sure, sure. Well, Genie is, as I mentioned, is very similar to certain kinds of apps that are very popular in the U.S., like Mint.com. Yep. And when we started out on this project, we were really trying to, I guess, sort of make a clone of it just to, you know, mimic the kinds of services that they would, that we have in the U.S. out here in Asia. And what we found is that there is like a big demand for this kind of product, but people are very like financially aware out here. And so the needs that they have go beyond just traditional personal financial management. They're, they always want more. Mm -hmm. And so the, the challenges that we have is that, you know, in order to have a complete picture of people's finances, you can't just say, I want to look at all my Hong Kong bank accounts, for example. So we've been working on is trying to develop a pan-Asian platform that can link a lot of bank accounts from a lot of different countries all in one place. We have a lot of clients here that are expats, whether from mainland Chinese expats or Western European or American expats, and their financial needs are greater than just being in Hong Kong. So we've focused a lot on trying to target these kinds of people. I see. And also for us, Hong Kong, a city of 7 million people, is really too small of a, of a market. So we've strategically 
positioned ourselves to be able to launch really easily in different countries. So we do work with banks, but we don't get our data from banks. We get our data through third-party sources, similar to they do in the U.S. So in the U.S. is a company called Played. They're one of the most successful fintech companies right now. Right. And they have aggregated APIs from banks and to provide them to fintech companies so that we can just latch in. And there are similar companies out here that do it. In fact, in fact, the company that we use to do a lot of our data aggregation, we use a couple. We use one that's Australian. We also use one that's Canadian. Mm. And so they have global bank connections so that for us, if we went to you know, connect or launch an app in a different country, it's just a press of a button and then we can do it. And that's much easier than for us to say going to directly to a bank and trying to negotiate to get an API, which has been impossible. No one's been able to do it because the banks, it's not in their interest to share data. So we rely on these third parties for that reason. I think what we're looking at is trying to you know, provide like this basic PFM service in different countries around Southeast Asia, but also looking beyond that is how do we provide other kinds of financial services. And so we're looking at using, you know, the loan space that we had talked about earlier, how can we use transaction data to do the underwriting? For example, in the absence of traditional credit scoring companies, what can we do with our data and our facilities to really provide accurate models to give lenders the security that they need to push more loans out and to give people better rates, right? So that's the kind of stuff that we're looking at doing and thinking about doing. And, you know, we've seen that in Asia, it's very interesting. There's basically two kinds of people. There's really rich people and really not rich people, right? People that have American standards, very low cost of living. Mm -hmm. And I think the challenge is how do we create a personal finance app that can cater to one or the other segment. And so I think that's the challenge that we're continuing to face in terms of product development is, you know, maybe the the rich people market is much more lucrative, right? But there's not as much scale as in the kind of the the middle and lower classes. And I think that's kind of how we're trying to, to think about our business model. Interesting. So how do listeners find out more about Ginny or yourself if they want to learn more about it? You can come visit our website, www.genie.co, mm-hmm. genie.co. And, you know, feel free to email me, you know, add me on LinkedIn. I'm always open to chat. You know, we're very, you know, talkative people, as mm-hmm. you can tell. But, you know, email me, whatever whatever you want to do. I'm, I'm very open to talk. You know, we've won a lot of awards. We've got a lot of press here in Hong Kong. So you can certainly do a search and learn more. But we have some limited functionality in the U.S. I think some people are able to link their certain banks like Chase. Like I've linked my Chase bank to the Genie app. Mm -hmm. We haven't really expanded. We can probably link a lot of banks in the U.S. if we wanted to. It's just our focus is Asia right now. So we're not, you know, a U.S. app. But we do think that, you know, in the future, whatever functionality we have may be applicable to people in the U.S. You know, our thinking on PFM is different from what we've been seeing in the U.S. So, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to learn about us and, and hopefully see us in the App Store in the future. 
Okay, that's great. One final question, Victor. What advice do you have for somebody who wants to break into the fintech industry in, in Hong Kong or greater China? Well, I think that the one piece of advice I would give to people if they want to come and do like business in China or in particular fintech is I think that you need local experience. And I'm not saying that if you're a foreigner that you're not going to make it out here, but you still need some type of partner or like someone to really give you the lay of the land. I would say that doing business in Asia is very relationship driven, especially in, in China, especially in Hong Kong, and probably even more so in Indonesia. It's, it's very much relationship driven. So having someone that knows the lay of the land, knows the people, the players is very helpful. There are a number of companies in Asia that specialize in bringing U.S. companies out here. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage you, know, you to kind of investigate those kinds of companies and, and partner with them in order to you know, grow a business out here in Asia. But I do think it's, the potential is quite big. You know, there's a number of U.S. companies that have come out here and have done very well. I earlier mentioned trade financing. There's a very big trade finance company from the U.S. called LiquidX that opened up in Singapore. And I know that since they've opened up, Asia has become one of their biggest markets. So I think for companies who, for example, are already at Series A or looking to raise a B or a C round, you know, being able to say that I have an Asia strategy is a really interesting angle to try and, you know, raise money for the next, you know, for, for at, at greater levels. Because at that point, once you have the product market fit, you're just looking for more users and, and more customers. So being able to say that I have an Asia strategy at that point of a startup, I think is very valuable. That's great. Okay. Thanks a lot, Victor, for this fascinating overview of FinTech in Asia. And thanks so much for coming to the show. Sure. Thanks for having me. It was very fun. Thank you. Thank you.